and, and forget about it. And you know you're responsible for what you've seen. You ever been there? Like God shows you something and you know, I'm responsible for this. God hasn't shown me this for no reason. And so as we're in Scotland, the first night we get there, we go to a prayer meeting at this church that's going to be kind of a partner church with us when we get there. And it was 10 people. We were half of those people. The rest of them were probably over 40. And we're sitting in the circle and they're sharing about this presbytery plan, which that may not mean a lot to us because we go to a Baptist church. But the way it works there is they have presbyteries. They work off the parish system. And so you have a church that's in one part of the city, another church in another part of the city, and so they call it the Glasgow Presbytery. The Glasgow Presbytery this year for the Church of Scotland is going to close about 30 posts, which means churches. They're not opening churches, they're closing them. And they're basically having to figure out how to bring pastors' jobs together and figure out what they're going to do with these guys' livelihood because the Church of Scotland is dying. And they said this statistic that was crazy to me. He said there's 88 20-somethings in the city of Glasgow, a city of 2 million people, hundreds of thousands of college students, 88 20-somethings go to a Church of Scotland. And then Friday night, I went to Saki Hall Street. And those of you who've been... A Scotland know where Saki Hall Street is. It's in the middle of the city center. It's where all the pubs and all the clubs are. And I walked down that street and the guy who was there with me told me there's 80,000 people out here tonight. And most of them are between the ages of 18 and, 20, and, and 30. So there's dissonance there, right? 88, 20 somethings attending a church service on a Sunday morning, 80,000 people pubbing and clubbing on a weekend night. That's the largest worship service in town. And so God has really just done something in our hearts to say, we want to reach that generation. We want to move this 88 to a little bit closer to the 80,000. And we believe God can do that. So thank you so much for praying for us, uh, praying for Ben and Sarah, Jill and Jamie that were with us. Continue to pray for them as they process uh, the possibilities of living there and what that looks like. It's just a whole different world than Brandon, Florida. Glasgow, Scotland is a different place than Brandon, Florida. And it's just inconvenient there. You just don't hop in your car and go somewhere. You got to get on a train. You got to get on a subway. You got to plan your day. And it's just different. And so pray for them as they kind of, in many ways, count the cost of what that will look like. Today is an important day in the life of our faith, if you don't know that. Today is the beginning of a season called Lent. And Lent is the season of prayer and a season of fasting that leads up to what we would say is Resurrection Day. I would say the most important day in our faith, Resurrection Day. And so the season of Lent is something that a lot of times in our minds, I grew up not practicing Lent. But as a Southern Baptist, some of us may go, oh, Lent, that's a Catholic thing. But, but it actually is a Christian thing. It's a part of the church calendar. And it starts on this day, and this day is very significant. It's called Ash Wednesday. Now, you may see some people walking around here with little ash on their head uh, in the shape of a cross. They didn't forget to take a bath today. They didn't fall over and forget to wipe their head off. They probably went to a service that was an Ash Wednesday service. And basically what happens on Ash Wednesday, it's the beginning of Lent. And Lent is a season where typically in the early Catholic church, they would give up meat for the 40 days leading up to Resurrection Sunday. But many evangelicals still practice Lent and they don't just have to give up meat. They give up all kinds of things. They give up uh, Facebook. They give up spending useless money on, on material things. They give up whatever it is that would bring you closer in this season to considering the journey of Jesus to the cross and the resurrection of Christ. It's basically a season of preparation where you get yourself ready because the interesting thing is this, is that we kind of cruise in and out of Christmas. We kind of cruise in and out of Easter. And do we ever kind of ready ourselves for that? That's why we do Advent. That's why we do Lent, to ready ourselves for that Sunday. So it's not just a Sunday where I put on my best clothes and I give my kids an Easter basket, we eat some chocolate, and then we come to church. It's a Sunday about Christ. And so I'm doing Lent. 
And I want to ask you to join me in doing Lent. Um, we're not going to go around and ask you what you're going to fast from, but I would ask you to consider taking the next few weeks as you lead up to Resurrection Sunday and do that. I've posted something on our Refuge Facebook page for you to help you with that. Version has a free uh, download, basically a free Bible reading program that you can read along with, and it will guide you in the journey of Jesus as you go from Lent uh, to Resurrection Sunday. You can also purchase a book. I haven't posted this, but a guy named N.T. Wright wrote a book about Lent, leading you up to Lent, and you can also get that super cheap. It's $5 on Amazon. So tonight, as we respond in just a minute to God's Word in our prayer room, uh, we do have some ash and we do have some oil, and so if any of you would like to partake in that and, and to basically do that, you say, well, why would I put that on my head? What is the semblance of the ash. The ash basically is to remind ourselves that we came from dust and we will return to dust and that death resides in us apart from Christ. Apart from the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, the atonement, then death resides in us. It's a time of mourning, but then the resurrection comes with a time of worship and a time of celebration. And so this kicks off that time. And so tonight that'll be available to you in the prayer room if you want to partake in that. Um, if you have your Bibles, go to Exodus chapter 15. Let's just pray really quickly because I believe God has a really strong word to say to us tonight. He's had a strong word to say to me this week as I've prepared, and then we'll get into it. Father, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that we live in a place where we have access to your word God, forgive us when we don't take advantage of that. And Lord, I pray that tonight that you would just take this simple story of your people in Exodus and God, you would allow us to see ourselves here. God, I believe every time we open up the Bible, we see two things. We see your character and we see ourselves. And so Father, help us see that tonight. Help us see your character in this text and help us see ourselves. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. Exodus chapter 15 kind of build the context for you. The children of Israel are wandering at this point. They have been released from their slavery. If you can go to the next slide, there's actually a map up here. You're going to have a hard time seeing it, but it'll give you some context. Um, they have been released from, from Egypt and um, they have traveled. You can see the Red Seas right here. They were taken over to the wilderness of Shur, which is actually around the Red Sea. Then they were told to go back towards Egypt, which is kind of a crazy thought, but they went back towards Egypt when Pharaoh was chasing them, and then God brought them down to cross over the Red Sea. Now, the interesting thing is you're looking at this map, it would have been really easy for them to just hop up north and take it all the way to Canaan. That would have been a couple week trip. But God brought them back and he brought them down and he brought them the impossible way, the inconvenient way, and he brings them through the Red Sea. And that's kind of where we left off last time in this series. And so now where they are is if you can see, it's a very little word, but it's under the wilderness of Etham or Shur. There's a word there. It says Marah. And God has brought them to this city called Marah. He brought them to the city. What's happened in the text is they've been traveling for three days. The body can survive about three days without water. They've been in a wilderness. They've been in a desert and they haven't had water. And so they've been traveling for three days. So let's look at the text together. Look at chapter 15 and uh, look at verse 22. Let, let me just back up for a second before we get into 22, because I, I want you to kind of get this for a second. <laughs> Verses 1 through 21 are a worship service. The people just got delivered from Egypt and they just worship. I'm just going to read this to you and, and just kind of track with me here for a second. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord saying, I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. 
The horse and his rider, he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise him. My father's God, I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. I love that imagery of God being a God who fights for his people. Verse four, Pharaoh's chariots and his host, he cast into the sea. And his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. That doesn't sound like any worship service you probably sang on a Sunday morning here. Verse 6, your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap, and the deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like the lead in the, in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretch out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard. They tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now the chiefs of Edom, dismayed, trembling, seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. So they're worshiping and you come down to verse 21 and Miriam stands up and sings and she says, she leads the ladies sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider, he is thrown into the sea. They're having a worship experience that they haven't had in a long time. They never worshiped like that in Egypt. You know what they did? They made bricks and they've been delivered. They've been set free and they just get to the other side of that sea and they just go halfway Pentecostal and they just go kind of crazy worshiping. They just go crazy worshiping. So with that thought, crazy worshipers saying things like, oh God, who is like you among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. They just said all those things to God. Now look at verse 22. This is the context, a worship service. They just got out of church. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and they found no water. And when they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses saying, what shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord and the Lord showed him a log or a tree and he threw it into the water and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule. And there he tested them saying, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord, your God and do that, which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all of his statutes. I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians for I am the Lord, your healer. Verse 27, then they came to Elam where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees and they encamped there by the water. 
So they show up to Marah and they are tired and they are thirsty and they are ready for some relief. They get to Marah. They've been traveling for three days. They are ready for some water. And what they would have known in their minds, at least what they would have thought geographically, is there's water in Marah. And they were right. There is water in Marah. But they get there and the water is not fit to drink. Some theologians think it was just bitter so it didn't taste good. Some theologians actually think that it may have been poisonous and they couldn't drink it or they would die. We don't really know, but it wasn't fit for them to drink. And so they get there and the Bible says that they grumble just after they experience this amazing moment of worship. So let me just pause for a second and ask us this question. Do we say things to God that we don't really believe to be true in actual life in a worship service and then walk out and grumble against him? Like, do we say, God, you are most glorious and there's no other God like you and I trust you with everything, God, and I lift my hands to you and I give you my life. And then we walk out and in the next moment, we grumble about the smallest things. Like, just really practically, like, you come to a worship service and you, you say to God, I trust you, and then your car breaks down and you just grumble towards him. Like, that's the kind of the everyday life stuff. Or you, or you get a bill that you weren't expecting or some family member gets sick and you just got through telling God how much you trust him. And then in the next moment when life happens, we grumble and you're probably looking at this going, those stupid Israelites. And I'm looking at myself going stupid me because I see myself here. So they come to Marah and in this text, verses 22 through 27, there's, there's basically two journeys kind of going on. And a lot of the texts here in Exodus have this thing going on. There's a very external reality that's really easy to see and kind of really easy to pick up. And then there's a more kind of internal depth of reality in the text that we kind of have to peel back the layers to get to a little bit. So let me start with the external and then we'll go to the internal. The external is really easy to see. They're journeying for three days. They come to this place called Marah. The text says that the water is not drinkable. Verse 23, when they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter and therefore it was called Marah, which basically means bitterness. And the people grumble against Moses. Moses cries out to God. And so God shows Moses this tree, this log. He takes the tree and the log. He throws it into the bitter water. And then all of a sudden the water becomes sweet. Not only does that water become sweet, but if you look down in verse 27, then they came to Elam where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees and they encamped there by the water. So if we could go back to the map for a second. So basically Elam is just down. I don't, you probably can't see it from here, but Marah and Elam is just probably a couple days walk down and you can see all that stuff around Elam. It's right next to the Red Sea. Those are 12 springs, which many people think represent the 12 tribes of Israel. And it is covered with palm trees. There's shade, there's water. It's a basic utopia. God brought them from a very bitter place to a very sweet place to a place of abundance. God brought them to Marah. And here's the external journey that we can see. It's very clear. What is the point here? Here's what God is doing. God is taking them to a place of bitterness and he wants to show them, I am the God who can take the bitter things of your life and turn them into something that's sweet, that's full of joy, that's full of restoration, that's full of refreshment. And so I just say this to you tonight. If you've come into this place and there's something in your life that's bitter, if there's bitterness in your life, unforgiveness, there's a situation you're walking through right now and you're looking at this going, God, why we serve a God who can take the bitter things and make them actually into something that's really sweet. 
That's the external journey. But the internal journey is a little deeper because it's actually what the text focuses on by one word in the text that we see. And it's the word for direct or show. So I want to take you back here to a second because that's the external. It's really easy to see, but, but here's the internal journey, so to speak of this text verses 22 through 27. The first thing is this, these points are going to be on the screen for you. The external is God can make the bitter sweet. Yeah, we get that. But God's doing something deeper. And I think he wants to do something deeper in your heart tonight with this text. More than just, God, I've got this situation. Can you make it awesome for me? God wants to do something in your heart. And that's what he wanted to do in the Israelites' heart. They had been journeying for three days. They get to Marah, and they thought Marah was the answer. So kind of the first point in this whole deal, the internal journey is this, is that Marah is a mirage. Like when you're in the desert, you watch those cartoons when you're a kid and you see them and they're in the desert in a movie and they start to see things. Has anybody ever been so thirsty that you actually begin to see things? Has anybody ever been that dehydrated or that thirsty? You, ever, you actually start to see stuff. Okay, I haven't been. But they say that when you've been journeying that long, your brain starts to kick in, you start to see stuff. Mirage wasn't a mirage, literally. It was there. There was water there. They could drink it. But it was a mirage because it wasn't the thing that fulfilled them. God had brought them to Marah. God had brought them there. But Marah, this land that had water in it, was a mirage for them. What do I mean by that? Here's what I mean. This internal journey is that God will bring us to places because he wants to expose what's going on in our heart. He wanted to expose what was going on in the Israelites' heart with him. He knew that they had just sang this amazing worship song to him. Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. And he's going, "Uh uh-huh. I appreciate that. But I know what's in your heart. I know right now you're worshiping me because you just got out of the Red Sea. But let's go to Marah, and let's see what you say then. So he brings them to Marah, and Marah is a mirage. And every one of us have Marahs in our life. Marah is a mirage, and a mirage is not a real thing. It doesn't really satisfy. It's not really there. And they think that the Marah is the thing that they need, but the reality is they just need God. And we've all kind of got these Marahs. The Marah could be that job I'm going to get. If I could just get that job, if I could just get there, then I've got it. I'm done. I'm good. That relationship, if I could just date him or her, then I'm good. The thought of someday he's going to pop the question and ask me to marry him. I've been waiting for a long time. And if I could just get, if he would just do that and stop being not a man and ask me the question, then I'm good. If I can just get out of college, then I'm good. If I could just get married, then I'm good. We've all got these mirages. We go to the doctor, we're really sick, or a family member's really sick with cancer, and the mirage would be, the doctor's going to say that we're okay. And here's what happens with mirages. You see them in the movies. People almost get there, and they realize, they jump headlong into it, and they realize it's not what it seemed to be. And for the Israelites, that's what happened. They got to Marah, and they realized it was literally a mirage. It wasn't what it was all shaped up to be. And some of you tonight are chasing after a Marah that is a mirage. You're longing for, you're grasping for something that you think is going to get you to that point of fulfillment or 
this point of contentment and you're just kind of grasping for it, but it's never really within your reach. It's, it's, it's not what it seems to be. And you've jumped headlong into it. And then when you get into it, that job, that relationship, that thing, even as good as it may be, you start to realize this is not it. (laughs) So when I was a senior in high school, I really wanted to date this girl. It was before I'd met Rachel and I was just an idiot. And I really wanted to date this girl. Her name was Becca Wolf. And she was kind of the it girl of Eastridge High School. Here's the problem. I was a senior. She was a sophomore. So that was a little sad. And yeah. And so, um, (laughs) but I was going to do everything in my power to persuade Becca Wolf to go to homecoming with me. So in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where I grew up, we used to have this tradition on homecoming, homecoming week, we would go and we would roll people's yards. I don't know what you guys, I've never done it here. What do you call it? TP, whatever. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Okay. Thank you. So we would go do this and uh, it was kind of a tradition. And it was one of those things like if you got your yard rolled, it was not a bad thing. It was actually a kind of a status symbol. Like you would go to school the next day and be like, bro, I got my yard rolled. I don't know what it was, but it was just like, if you got your yard rolled, that meant that somebody thought enough of you to go roll your yard. It's just the most messed up thing in the world. So, uh, and, and then sometimes you would go roll yards and sometimes you would defend your yard. And that was always fun. So you'd just camp out knowing there would be rumors floating around Eastridge High School. Matt Selb's getting his yard rolled and I'm like, oh, it's on. So you would just kind of get like a high pressure, uh, you know, water gun or something. Just wait. Because if you make the toilet paper wet, it's done, right? You're not rolling anybody's yard. So, so I went out rolling one night and I was, I was with this group of my friends and they all decided to go home. And we, Becca and I just by ourselves wanted to go roll this one guy's yard. He had rolled my yard. So we were like, well, let's head out there. He lived way out. He never thought anybody would drive out there and roll his yard. So Becca and I load up. We have 80 rolls of toilet paper in my car. We drive out to Ryan O'Gwen's house. I still remember this like it's yesterday. He lived in a developing subdivision. So there weren't a lot of houses on the street. And he lived at the end of a cul-de-sac. And so we get there and we realize this is a developing subdivision, which means this. There are zero trees there. What do you roll when you don't have trees? Like the house, the mailbox, and a car. That's it. So we just start rolling whatever we can find. And then all of a sudden, we see headlights coming down the street. Well, there's two houses on Ryan Street. It's his and another guy's. So we're going, we got a 50-50 chance here that we're toast. So the car's coming, and we're holding all this toilet paper, and Becca starts to freak out. And in my mind, because I'm a senior guy, all I want to do is impress her. That's all I'm thinking about. And so I'm like, oh, I'm going to impress her. So I see this bush this line of bushes, okay? And I think, I'm just, I'm going to dive behind them. Like, I just had this <laughs> alpha male moment that I don't usually have. And I was just like, I'm just going for it. So like, from here to there, I just dove. And, and I thought, I'm going to look so MacGyver right now, um, <laughs> jumping into these bushes. And she's going to think, I'm just going to do like a tuck and roll thing and roll behind the bushes. She's going to think I'm awesome and be like, let's go to homecoming. It didn't go down like that. So I dive headlong into those bushes. Um, I did not take the time to investigate, though, that on the other side of the bushes was a chain-link fence. <laughs> so I dive headlong into the bushes and, and get chain-link on my head. I mean, I'm basically like laid out. I dive in, and I fall out, and I wake up, and Becca's over me laughing, and Ryan, whose yard we're rolling, is over me laughing. It was his car. So, so the next day I get up, and we go to school, and I've got like chain-link fence marks. I'm not even lying. Like I, got a, I went to Atomic Tattoo and had it put on my head. 
That was in my homecoming pictures from my senior year, by the way, my chain link fence marks. I say all that to say, I thought that that was the answer. I'm going, yeah, that's the answer. And I dove headlong into it, but it wasn't what it seemed. It actually was the opposite of what I thought it was. And so for Israel, they come to this mirage and they dive headlong into it, but it's not what they seem. So look at their attitude here. Look at verse 24. The water's bitter. And so what do they do? The people grumble against Moses and they say, what shall we drink? They turn around and they grumble against him. So God brought them there. The internal journey is this. Marah is a mirage. It's not what you think it is. And God brings them to Marah because it is a mirage and he knows that it's a mirage and he knows that what's going to happen is it's going to reveal their hearts. Second point is this. Marah tests and reveals what's in our hearts. Look at verse 24 and 25. It says basically that they come there and they begin to grumble against him. And so verse 25 says this, and he cried out to the Lord and the Lord showed him a log and he threw it into the water and it became sweet. So they cry out to God. It tests their hearts. It reveals what's going on inside of them. So the outside obstacle of not having water and then getting to water and in that moment where they go, this is it. And they get down on their faces and their knees and they take a big gulp of it and they go, this is not it. And some of us have just taken a big drink of what we thought was it. A relationship, a job material stuff, drugs, alcohol, whatever your mirage is, and you're starting to realize this is not it. Like some of you have been there. You've dove headlong into a relationship and you think that that guy or that girl is going to satisfy you? That's a mirage from hell. (laughs) You dive headlong into drugs and alcohol, and you think that's going to satisfy you dive headlong into being sexually active. You think that's going to satisfy you. You dive headlong into materialism. You think that's going to satisfy you. You dive headlong into a job. You think that's going to satisfy you. That is a lie from hell. And God knows what's in their hearts. And he brings them to this place of Marah. And he knows that Marah is going to reveal the wickedness of their heart. And he wants to test them. Now, Uh, When you hear about a test, you don't always like that. When I was in college and high school, I don't like tests. Tests usually mean one of two things. You pass it or you fail it. But that's not how God does tests. God does tests to train us. So he brings them there as his people whom he's redeeming and redeemed, and he's training them for righteousness. So he wants to actually bring some stuff to the surface. And so what God will do in our lives is he will bring us to a marah. He will bring us to an outward situation that will indeed reveal your heart to you. And so he uses it to reveal to them the fact that they have grumbling and bitter hearts. God is training them to trust him like a child has to learn to trust their parents. So many of you know Jane, our daughter. We bring her home, and we've had her home a little over two years now, and it has been this process of just her learning to trust us, of her learning that we are good and we have her best interest in mind. It's been this crazy process, and there's still days. There's still days, two years. We fed her every day. We've put her clothes on her every day, and sometimes she takes them back off, but we put them back on her. Every day we have taken care of her and there are still days where there are signs in her heart that I can see that she does not trust us. That what we have for her is best. 
because we're, we're training her to trust us. That's what God's doing to his people. So he brings them to Mirage. It's a mirage. It's not enough. And he wants to see how they're going to respond. And the bitterness of those waters, it's not about those waters. It's about the bitterness of their heart. Here's what God is saying. These waters are your heart. Your automatic response, Israel, was to turn around after you've had this amazing, better than passion, better than Hillsong worship service, and you turn around and you grumble at me. He said, no, no, no. They grumbled to Moses. Do you remember the Red Sea? Moses would pick up his arms and he put his staff down and the water split. And Moses is the mediator. There's a mediator between the Israelites and God, and it's Moses. So they grumble to Moses. In essence, they grumble to God. And so he's revealing to them what is in their hearts. He wants to test them. But thirdly, the Marah, verse 26, teaches us to hope in God and not what God gives us. Look back here at verse 26. And here's what it says. Saying, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all of his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord, your healer. That first phrase in verse 26, if you will listen diligently to the voice of the Lord your God. But here's what God wants them to do. He brings them to this mirage called Marah, where the waters seem like they will satisfy, but they don't. He reveals to them that the waters are their hearts, and here's what he wants to teach them. And here's what he wants to teach us. It's a really, really easy thing to do for me to hope in the things God gives me and not hope in the God who gives them to me. So let me just get real kind of practical with you. I love with every fiber of my being, my family. When I'm away from them, like when I was in Scotland last week, my worst nightmare on a trip is to get a phone call that something's happened to somebody in my family and I'm eight hours away from them. Like that's, I, that's my nightmare. I love my family. I love my wife. I love my girls. But at the end of the day, they can't satisfy me. At the end of the day, if I lost all of them, I still have a hope in God. See, the problem is, is when we begin to hope in even the good things that God gives us and we begin to kind of put our fingers and our hands and our arms around that and go, I hope in this relationship or this job or this money or this thing or this opportunity. And when it goes away, then we're left with nothing. And here's what God wants to train his people to. You have to trust in and hope in me because there's going to be a lot of times on this journey to Canaan that you're going to have to hope in me and me alone. It's the same for us. It's really, really easy to take the blessings of God and worship them. But that's what Romans 1 talks about. It says they exchange the glory of God for the created things. They worship the created things over the creator. Now, that's really easy to go. Yeah, well, okay, drugs, alcohol, all that kind of stuff. Those are like the really obvious things. But what about your ministry opportunity for some of you? What about your school, your education that some of you really value? We have such a tendency to place our hope in all these things and they're good gifts from God, but then God gives us this good gift and we get enamored with it instead of being enamored with the giver. And what God's trying to do here is he's trying to go, no, 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 I am your hope. Marah was never your hope. 
As you journeyed for those three days, those waters of Marah were not your hope. You thought they were your hope, but I have always been your hope. I'm the one who delivered you out of the Red Sea. I'm the one who will deliver you into Canaan when it's my time. I've always been your hope. Nothing else is your hope, not the waters of Marah, not anything else. I am your hope. God wants to train them that he is their hope and he alone is their hope to hope in God and not the things that God gives us. But then lastly, he kind of ends with this. And this is really the crux of it all. Verses 25 and 27, look back at the text. And this kind of weird thing happens. Moses cries out to the Lord. The Lord shows him a log, the text says. He throws it in the water and the water becomes sweet. Then the Lord makes a statute or a rule and he tests them saying, if you'll diligently listen to the voice of the Lord, your God, do what is right in his eyes, give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes. I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians for I'm the Lord, your God, your healer. He, in essence, gives them a commandment. He gives them a commandment about the commandments. The commandments are to come. They're on their way to Sinai. They haven't gotten the commandments necessarily yet. They're going to get the commandments. They're on their way. And God is basically saying to them, this is how it's going to work. So the fourth thing is this, and it'll be on the screen for you. Marah is not about water transformation. Marah is about heart transformation. If those waters that are bitter represent their heart, Marah is not about water getting changed from poisonous and bitter to sweet. Marah is about heart transformation. God wants to do something deeper here. He doesn't want just to give them some prosperity of water. He wants to say, this water represents your heart, and how does it get changed? Well, this is a really kind of interesting thing, because this is the whole deal that the internal journey rests on. The word here... I don't know what you got. You may have ESV. You may have NIV. It says a lot of different things. It may say, ESV says, showed him a log or a tree. Uh, NIV may say something like directed him to. But basically, the root word of that is the root verb for the word Torah. Torah means to teach, to instruct. The Torah is the instruction, the law of God. And so basically what it would read in the Hebrew, if you kind of literally said it, is it would sound weird. That's what we don't have in our Bible. It would literally say, God Torahed Moses a tree. Well, that sounds ridiculous. What in the world does that mean? God Torahed Moses a tree. Here's what he's saying. This tree is Torah. You put this in the water and it will change the atmosphere of that water. It will literally change its elements. It makes it go from being really bitter to really sweet. So what is he saying? He's basically saying this. How do you get your heart from being bitter, bitter, sinful, sinful, grumbling against a holy God after you just worshiped him to being this, this heart that is full of praise and gratitude? How do you do that? You Torah it. What do you mean by that? I mean, basically this is that he's saying to him, you put the Torah in your heart. You put God's law in your heart. And some of you, God has brought you to a situation, even now, where he's revealing to you that there are things in your life that your heart is, is showing exactly who you are. It's really interesting to watch people sometimes. Because they can talk a good talk. They can make really good Facebook posts. But you just watch people. I've watched people. When tragedy comes, when hardship comes, when difficulty comes, it doesn't matter what's on their Facebook wall or what you just said last Sunday or sang last Sunday. Your heart's going to be shown. It always is. 
I remember my pastor when I was a small child, he used to do children's church and all the kids would come up and, and I don't remember anything he said for like 15 years of that. I didn't go up when I was a 15 year old, but I don't remember anything that he said. I do remember this though. I remember him having a ketchup bottle and he, he, he had this ketchup bottle and he said, what do you think is going to come out? And I remember all the kids were like, ketchup, you're an idiot. What do you, it's ketchup. And, he, and he's like, you don't expect mustard to come out. Like, no, it's, it's not going to come out. And he squeezed it and ketchup came out. And it's like, what's in the bottle is going to come out. And here's basically what God is saying is morale reveals your heart. And some of you need to Torah it. How do you change a bitter heart? You put the word in it and you stir it. Because here's what he says after that. He says, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, give ear to his commandments and keep all of his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you. I will put on the Egyptians for I am the Lord your healer. And in verse 27, they came to Elam where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees and they encamped there by the water. So he basically says to them, do you want to have your heart look like these waters? No. You want a heart that's full of worship? Listen diligently to my voice, Torah. Keep my statutes, Torah. Follow my commandments, Torah. The word of God that changes someone's heart. What is that for us? The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus is our Torah. So what do I do when I find bitterness in my heart? What do you do when you come upon a scenario in your life and you know, like, Some of you know, like there are things you're walking through right now and it's just revealing some depravity in your heart. What do you do? You bring it to Christ who is our Torah. He is the word made flesh. You put yourself under the obedience of the word of God. That's why this season of Lent is so important to take a season where you just pray and you immerse yourself in the word of God and you abstain from something that is your mirage that you think you can hope in and you say, no, I don't hope in this thing. I hope in this thing. And you just immerse yourself in that. God will change your heart. He will. That's not just like some trite kind of evangelical saying. He will transform your heart from the inside out. And that's what Israel needed. That's what they needed. They came to Moran. It was a mirage. God was testing them. He was revealing to them that their hearts were like those waters. But as he said to Moses, he tore at him a tree and he said, put it in there and it will become sweet. And verse 27 is interesting because they come to this place that's like this utopia, Elam. It's got 12 springs of water, 70 palm trees, and they encamp there by the water. But they're about to go back into the desert. And it's an interesting thing that we see the grace of God here. For a grumbling people who've grumbled, he gives them sweet water and he brings them to a place that's full of water and full of shade. Isn't that our God? Like he just deals so graciously with us. And just like a small child who's just pitching a fit, like some of my kids do sometimes and, and just throwing things everywhere. And then in that moment, he could respond with just wrath and he takes his children and he goes, no, 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 let me teach you something. I'm a good, worthy, trustworthy father. I'm gonna bring you to a place of refreshment. And he does that. But the reality is some of you tonight, God is revealing some things in your heart because of life situations. Some things that are good, some things that are bad. And you know that, you know, when God's revealing to you just the ugliness of your heart, but here's a great truth this, this night (laughs) is the fact that God's revealing to you, the ugliness of your heart and causing you to want to hope in him means this. He's not done with you. And that's really good news. That's amazing news. 
He was not done with Israel. He is not done with you. I want to invite um, a friend of mine up. Uh, you know her well. Many of you know her well, uh, Diana Rivera. And I've asked her to share a little bit of her story and her journey uh, the past few months um, as it relates to kind of what we've talked about tonight. So, Diana, would you just come up and um, you guys can kind of give her a welcome here. And you should be in, so. Okay, um, for the sake of time, I'm just going to read this, also for clarity, because I have a lot to say. So, um, Actually, and I'm going to pray just really quickly before we get started. Um, Father, I just pray that your word um, would be um, lifted up, that you would be lifted up tonight, God, that you would move me out of the way, and that you would speak to your people. God, we thank you for your goodness to us, for your faithfulness, and we pray that that would just be made known tonight. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, here we go. Bear with me. Um, I'm here today tonight to testify to God's faithfulness, how God, the giver of both sweet and bitter things, is always working for our good and his glory. I'm here to share with you what the Lord has taught me in my own desert journey. But before I begin, I want to read a passage of scripture to you from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. I'd like to warn you that I'm often foolish, that I don't have wisdom of my own, and that I'm well aware of my weaknesses. But I praise God for these imperfections, because through my weaknesses, his strength is made perfect, his wisdom is put on display, and he alone receives glory. Tonight I boast in him alone. Every good and perfect gift comes from God, and no good thing does he withhold from those who love him. To him alone be the glory. For those of you who don't know me or my story, I imagine a description of my inter entry into the desert is probably necessary. I did not intend to tell you the details of my story in order to gain your support or sympathy, but I want you to taste a little of the bitterness in my life so that you can also understand the miraculousness of the Lord turning it sweet. My journey began about eight months ago on June 27th, 2011. Most of you know the event that I'm speaking of. Many of you knew and loved my husband, Jake Fowler. He and I both grew up in this church, and as we got older, we both served in the music and youth ministries, from teaching Bible fellowship to C groups, with Jake playing bass guitar here almost every Wednesday night since he graduated from high school. Jake was my first boyfriend, my first kiss, my first love, and when he and I got married in the summer of 2010, after almost four years of dating, I had nothing but high hopes for our future together. Nearly all of my hopes and dreams involved him in one way or another, and I was so proud to call him my husband. At the age of 22, he'd already received his bachelor's degree and completed two years of medical school. He was two years away from being a full-fledged doctor, and we were praying about how the Lord would someday use his medical expertise and my training as a teacher overseas. Every day I looked forward to seeing him. He was truly one of the most unique and talented yet humble people you could ever know. 
This summer, Jake and I signed up to serve as counselors at Camp Kalakwa, just as we had been for the past four years. This would be the first year that he and I were able to serve together as a married couple, and we were looking forward to growing and serving together all week with our group of 7th and 8th grade students. I remember so vividly every detail of that first day of camp. We were enjoying all of the hecticness and excitement of the first day. As I walked around the grounds of Camp Kalakwa, my mind was filled with memories of being there as a student, of serving there for the past several years as an adult. I reminisced about the day almost exactly five years prior when Jake and I had met there as students. I felt so peaceful and content and comfortable in that place. During some free time that day, I sat and watched Jake swimming and free diving in the spring with friends. It was something he did every year, so I didn't think a second thing about it. I left that afternoon with another counselor while he was still swimming to run a quick errand. I didn't even think to say goodbye or tell him where I was going. As I said, I never thought a second thing about what he was doing. About 30 to 40 minutes later, when I was returning to camp from my errand, I received the first couple frantic voicemails on my phone. As I was listening to the third voicemail from another counselor urging me to call back immediately, I looked out of the passenger window of the car and saw ambulances and fire trucks parked near the springs, lights flashing, a flurry of activity around them. Immediately, my heart sank. Panic set in, and a thousand questions filled my mind. I knew immediately that something had to have happened to Jake. All of my worst fears were confirmed as another counselor approached the vehicle that I had been riding in. As soon as I saw her, the words, don't say it, don't say it, escaped from my mouth with tears and an anguish that I had no idea were inside of me. Her response with a cracking voice was, honey, Jake's been in an accident. They're doing chest compressions on him now. He had blacked out while diving in the spring. Immediately, I was rushed to my father-in-law and brother-in-law, who had also been serving at camp and had already been whisked away from the scene of the accident. When I saw Jake's father, usually calm, collected, and stern, doubled over and weeping, I knew things had to be bad. I sat for a few minutes crying in my brother-in-law's arms without knowing exactly what was going on when a medevac helicopter landed in the field next to us. Jake was transported to what they called the best hospital nearby, and myself and Jake's dad and brother quickly found ourselves being sped to the hospital in a police cruiser. I remember clearly the hope that I had on that car ride to the hospital, how confident I was that the Lord could and would heal Jake, how much I was looking forward to talking to him and telling him that I loved him. Once I arrived at the hospital, we were taken to our own waiting room just for our family. We passed long minutes sitting in the small room waiting on other family members to make the two-hour drive to where we were until almost an hour had passed. The longer we sat there, the more sure I became that the news would not be good. And when a whole team of doctors and a counselor entered our room, my heart sank. The young doctor, who with every word reminded me of Jake, spoke of the valiant efforts to revive my husband, but then regretfully stated that he had not made it. I can still hear clearly in my head the cries of myself and Jake's dad and brother as soon as the words came out of the doctor's mouth. Shock, disbelief, and heartbrokenness overwhelms me. And so began my journey through the desert, a journey that's been exhausting and tiresome, but also reviving and more rewarding than I could have ever imagined. 
I can relate to the Israelites in Exodus 13 and 14 as they stared in disbelief at the barren land ahead of them. At first, the sight of life without Jake was unbearable for me. The landscape was unfamiliar and ugly. It wasn't the promised land I had hoped the Lord was leading me to. It looked dry and painful and agonizing. I wished along with the Israelites that the Lord had planned something different for me, that he would take me to the promised land by another route. But this was the path he had chosen for me. In those first days, I also found myself wishing along with the Israelites for death. The first morning after Jake's death, I distinctly remember thinking of other widows I knew, wondering how do people live after this? The task to simply keep living seemed impossible to me. However, the Lord knew exactly what I needed to keep living and keep journeying and has provided it every step of the way. In those first days when I was paralyzed with grief, did not know what to pray, and could not bear to look at the road ahead, the promise of Exodus 14.14 washed over me. The Lord will fight for you, and you only have to be silent. The Lord carried me along until I could begin to take small steps again. Sometimes those steps were taking a shower. Next, they were paying a bill without Jake. Then they were buying... Then they were building the courage to sleep and live alone. And with each step I took, my strength grew and my strides did too. I'm so grateful for how the Lord broke me in those days because it built in me a trust and intimacy with him that I had never known before. As I walked with my hand in his, minute by minute, hour by hour, day by day, and week by week, my trust in him grew and my knowledge of his character deepened. I can say with complete genuineness that I'd never wish this experience away, never turned back on this journey, never changed a thing that the Lord has done thus far in my life. Knowing him is worth any cost. There is sweetness in suffering, and that sweetness is in knowing God. As Isaiah thirty twenty says, and though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teacher will not hide himself anymore, but your eyes shall see your teacher. Some attributes that I have come to know and love much more deeply about God through this journey are his sovereignty, his goodness, and his sufficiency. God's sovereignty is the pillow on which I rest my head at night. It means that God is in complete control. This means that what happened on June 27th was no surprise to him. In fact, it was part of his plan. Lamentations 3 says that from the mouth of the Most High, both good and bad come. Likewise, the life I'm experiencing now is a part of his plan. It's not a backup plan in light of tragedy. This is part of his good and perfect plan for my life. God's sovereignty is even more of a comfort when paired with his goodness. The Lord is not a vindictive God who hands out tragedy for the fun of it. He is a loving father. Psalm 119 says he is good and does good. He's a hiding place and a shield for those who hope in him. Matthew 7 says to us, if then you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Um, sorry, I lost my place. <laughs> Um, God truly does know how to give good gifts. He has graced me with more than I could have asked for or imagined, but most of all, he's gifted me with Jesus. He so loved the world that he gave his only son. Finally, I've seen God's sufficiency. He's He always knows and provides exactly what I need physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Corey Ten Boom, a Christian survivor of the Holocaust of World War II, said, You may never know that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all that you have. I've found that to be exceedingly true during these past months. God took me from the took from me the one thing I didn't think I could do without, and he has brought me to a place of abundance. Almost immediately on my journey, the Lord impressed John 15, which had been the 
theme passage for camp this year upon my heart. He reminded me of the importance of his word and abiding in him, and that without him I could do nothing. And as I read his word, it came alive to me as never before. A friend asked me a few months after Jake's death what passages in scripture the Lord had revealed to me during this time. My response was that I don't think I read anything new. I just read it with new eyes. God's promises are so alive to me now that it's as if they were dead before. Now when I read that he's my husband, my provider, the protector of the widow, the strength of my heart and my portion forever, I can shout with a resounding yes that those promises are true. I have lived them. I've experienced them. But we're so quick to forget his promises and to grumble even after he proves himself by parting Red Seas and providing for us abundantly. It's been said that the more human creatures have tasted of the bitter things of life, the more they crave the sweeter things. The bitter, the bitter things that God has allowed into my life have indeed given me an intense craving for the sweeter things. The problem comes when we look for those sweetness in things other than God. I found myself at those mirages of Marah at various points along this road. At times, I thought that remarriage was the sweet water I was looking for. Perhaps some of you think you will find fulfillment and satisfaction in a spouse or a career or a calling. I can tell you most assuredly that you will not. Satisfaction is found in God alone. The bitterness of sin creeps its way into all people and all relationships on this earth. That does not mean there is not beauty in them, but only that that their imperfections make us long for something perfect. Their brokenness makes us hope for something better. That something that satisfies is God alone. One of my favorite passages in all of scripture, Isaiah 55 says, Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Eat of Jesus, the bread of life. Listen diligently to him by feasting on his word. The Lord is our portion, therefore we will hope in him. One verse that God used in my life to clear false hopes and mirages and kill the idols of my heart was 1 Peter 1.13. For months I quoted it to myself when I felt myself setting my sights and hopes on things other than Christ. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hopes fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Through this verse, God taught me to set my hope fully on him, and not in a man or in any works of man for restoration, safety, and peace. Once I surrendered that area of my life to God, he has begun the work of bringing restoration and sweetness in ways that I could have never achieved or planned on my own. Don't look for sweetness in the things that God can give, but in God alone. If tonight you found yourself in a bitter place, or found yourself bitter in a place, I hope you've been encouraged. The Lord is good, and He takes us on these desert journeys for a purpose. I may never know the complete reason why God took my husband, but I do know that He intends for me to know Him more and love Him more through it. Oswald Chambers says, We all know people who have been made much meaner and more irritable and more intolerable to live with by suffering. It's not right to say that all suffering perfects. It only perfects one type of person, the one who accepts the call of God in Christ Jesus. It's also been said that adversity introduces a man to himself. I pray that when we in this room face adversity, which we all will at some point or another, that we will find ourselves worshipers and not grumblers. I praise God for you, brothers and sisters, for your prayers and love for me these past eight months. 
Before I go, I'd like to leave you with some encouragement from Scripture. Deuteronomy 8.10 instructs us, When you have eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Be careful that you don't forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands, his laws, and his decrees. I invite you to, to exalt the Lord with me tonight as we reflect on Psalm 90, a psalm written by Moses, which I thought would be appropriate, after having experienced the desert. By God's providence, this was also the passage that Jake and I chose as a couple during premarital counseling for our theme verse. So I'm going to read from Psalm 90, and then I will be done. (laughs) Um, Lord, you've been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. Like in the morning it flourishes and is renewed, in the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath, we bring our years to end like a sigh. The years of our life are seventy, or by, even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Thank you. But I can say this, and then we're going to worship. Um, Marah always reveals what's inside of us. Always. And um, I can say this, Diana would not say this about herself, but I can say this about her, because uh, my wife and I did their premarital counseling. I married them on those steps out there at the New Worship Center, and my wife has been her meta leader for a couple years was for a couple years. Um, I haven't seen Diana grumble against the Lord. I haven't. She wouldn't say this about herself, but I'll say it about her. It's because I saw somebody who was entrenched in the word before that. Morale always reveals where you are in your heart and how much the word is in your heart. And some of you are walking through a mirage right now, and you've believed a mirage, and it is—it's revealing some really, really nasty stuff about what's in your heart. But know this: God is good to do that, because He's like a heart surgeon, just working stuff out that has to come out, right? It doesn't happen overnight. It happens by continually, daily, consistently putting Torah, Word of God, in your heart. Because the outward obstacles always reveal inward realities about who you are. Every time. Every time. And God is enough. Not the stuff God gives you, not the job God gives you, not the education God gives you, not the relationship God gives you, not the money God gives you, not any of... 
God is enough because all those things will burn up someday. And he's the only one who'll be left. God, his word, period. He's enough. Let's pray. We're going to worship together and tell him he's enough. Father, thank you, thank you, thank you that we can stand here tonight and tell you that you're enough. God, I thank you so much for Diana's story. And God, though none of us would have wished her to walk through that, for many of us, because we knew Jake personally, have walked through that as well. God, we, we don't want that. We never want to come to Marah, to come to the wilderness. But Father, you lead us there sometimes because you want to do some work in our lives, gracious work. So Father, thank you for real life stories about a real life God who's really working. And God, I have to believe that in this room, you're working now. God, you've used your word tonight. You've used Diana's testimony and you are pinpointing some things in some people's hearts that they know they're hoping in the wrong thing. They have got bitterness in their heart. They've got sin in their heart. And God, you are just like a laser pointing it out because you're gracious to not leave us in our sin to sanctify us to holiness. So God, I pray that as we worship you, God, that we would worship in spirit and truth with honesty tonight. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Tonight as you worship,